If you'd open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. If you'll remember, we are continuing to look at Genesis. I'm hoping that as uh, for some of you that say, you know, what is Genesis to do with, uh, with Jesus of Nazareth? Well, I'm hoping uh, every week we're seeing how this has something to do with Jesus of Nazareth. But I hope in particular that as we look at this, we will see that the very things that we're dealing with here are incredibly important um, for how we think about life. It is interesting to me that in the New Testament, both upon Jesus' lips and upon his apostles, Noah is one of the main characters that is pointed out to us that is of imminent help to us as we await the second coming of Christ. It's interesting to me that it's Noah, of all people in the Old Testament, that gets pointed to a lot as a sense of the time of Noah. This is what it was like for Noah. And the similarities that we shouldn't be surprised to experience and feel, um, we can relate with Noah. And so I'm hoping that you will find, as we look at these passages, that this is not just an ancient history lesson, but rather is of great practicality to your everyday life, as well as an incredible display that history is not just something that happens, but something that God is delighted to see to it that it happens in the way that he wants it to. Let's look at this passage, if you'd stand with me. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth, was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from all the earth. All Noah, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you all of all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, 
For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Having said what I said to you before, I want us to think about what the days of Noah were like. We live in a world that is fraught with uncertainty. We feel it every day when we get up. Some of us who care more about politics are, are concerned. And there's a lot of concern right now. Who will emerge as a viable candidate? Who are we going to vote for? Some people are so frustrated with the whole process, they're just saying, I'm not voting for anybody this year. I just don't see anybody that I really care for at all. You see issues of faith and religion being played out in the, par- in, in the common marketplace of our society. People are struggling with, does faith have a place? Should it even be talked about? Should it even be relevant? That's your own personal business. I mean, we just see all kinds of things which can make the world seem a place of uneasiness, a place of not our home. We feel it. And yet, on the other hand, at this time of year, people will be giving in marriage and getting married and celebrating anniversaries and celebrating birthdays and celebrating parties, and life just seems to go on like it always has. You have these two competing realities going on of a sense of chaos, a sense of uncertainty, a sense of frustration, a sense of struggle, and things just going on, business as usual, same old, same old, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, type attitude. And what I want you to see is, is that the text we have before us speaks directly into that reality speaks directly into how we should think about that. And so therefore, it proves itself to be of imminent importance that we come to some conclusions and understand what's going on in this passage. Some of the questions I want you to think about is, how should Christians operate in a world that's like that? What should Christians be known for in a world that operates like that? Because Peter's already told us, in the last days it will be just like the days of Noah. Here we are. So we need to think about this and understand how we might take these things and apply them to our lives and understand how we're able to live in light of this. The first thing I want us to notice then in this passage is God's memory. Look at what the beginning of this chapter tells us. But God remembered Noah. Some of the greatest passages... And the scriptures begin with that little conjunction, junction. What's your function? But. But. But God. But God being rich in mercy. But God. And here we see in this passage, that conjunction says, in light of all the realities that go on in chapter 7, Verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth. The waters of judgment are prevailing. Everything is, that has breath in it is being drowned. 
And then this opening statement, but God remembered Noah. Now, we might think about memory in some sense of synapses going on and God was out doing his thing with the flood and he goes, oh yeah, Noah, I almost forgot about you, brother. I remembered you. Oh yeah, we need to go back and take... That's not at all what's going on here. That's not the idea that's being described here. Every time in Scripture that the, the notion of God remembering, it's always something to do with Him taking an action towards someone. Most often to show His power and His mercy. So when the text tells you God remembered, the idea there is not that God remembered Noah because he had forgotten, but rather the text is trying to draw you to say, and now the sovereign God who has moved forward in judgment delights to move towards Noah with that same power and with divine mercy and love. And that's what we begin to see. And we need to see that because everything that happens out of that is directly related to God's memory. Note here that it tells us in response to God remembering, and I think it's beautiful in this passage, it should say something to us as God's people, that it doesn't just tell us that he remembered Noah, but it goes on to say, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. That has to say something to how we think about the created order as Christians. It has to. I think the one thing we cannot be as Christians is callous towards the creation. And, and I won't, that could be a whole other sermon which I'm not going to get off on, but I do want you to take note that repeatedly throughout the scriptures, God takes note of the creatures. God cares about critters. And there's something to be said when Christians don't. How really Christianly are we acting when we don't care much about creatures? We see later on in this text that Noah, one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, reaches out his hand to the dove. He extends himself out towards her to draw her back into the ark to give her a place of rest and safety. We see that. We see that sense of who God is. Remember Jonah. When Jonah's so angry, God says, Should I have destroyed that great city with all the people and many cattle? Why the cattle? We all know they don't have souls. What difference can they possibly make? Do you see God? We're right to sometimes seeing all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful. The Lord God made them all. We're supposed to care about the creation. That doesn't mean we always get caught up in science's latest revelation It does mean, though, that we're not indifferent to the created world. Christians ought to be green in some way, to use the modern vernacular. We ought to care about our environment and the world we live in. We're not ruled by progress in the almighty dollar. We ought not be, anyway. We have to think. We have to be thoughtful and useful. And I say that because not because I say so, but because God remembers His creation. He tells us in the text, he remembered, he cared about it, he's cleansed it, he's purified it. Why? So that these creatures could come back into 
a cleansed world. We have every reason to believe that if every intention of man's heart was only wicked continually, that part of his only wicked continually was found in abusing the creation and especially the critters. Why should we not see that when that's been the reality throughout history? People have often used animals for their own devices and inventions without really any real care for the animals. That's just been seen throughout history. That's not always the case, but it certainly has been seen, and so we shouldn't be surprised when we see it around us. Now, the other thing I want us to notice here in this text before I move on to the next point is that God responds to his memory. We see him act because God sends out a wind to blow over the earth and the water subsided. Now, it may be right for our translators to translate that word, ruach, good Hebrew word, fun to say. It may be right for them to translate that wind because it can mean wind, but it also can mean spirit. And the only reason why I draw your attention to this is because remember, you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and the ruach of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. And there it's translated spirit. The spirit of God was hovering over the deep. We have every reason to believe, I think, would not be wrong to say that whether it's a wind that God sends out or, in fact, it is the Spirit that God sends forth over the earth. It's actually the third person of the Godhead, again, in action, going out over the earth and superintending nature to draw it to separate and to dry up and for dry land to reappear. We have every reason to believe that that God and the text is driving us in every way to show us that God is in control, that God is at work. Unlike the Babylonian accounts, and if you were to read the Babylonian flood accounts, what you would find is when the flood happened, when the whole idea of the waters prevailed on the earth, what you see there is the gods all were freaked out by what they'd done. They're overwhelmed with it. Oh my word, what have we done? We've unleashed this flood. We have no control of it. It's just out of control. Notice that the Genesis account is exactly the opposite. God is completely in control. The waters may appear chaotic to the observer, but they are completely and totally under the control of Almighty God. We'll wait thousands of years before we see this, but in the Gospel of Mark, we see another storm that seems to be out of control to God's people and a man who's asleep in the back of the boat who merely stands up and says, Hush, be still, and it is. God is always in control of nature, no matter what it appears like to man. Hurricanes don't just happen. Things aren't just random. God is a God who's in control. The second thing I want us to look at, and that kind of leads us into the second point, which is, God is God's work. I want you to notice here that God was active. He wasn't passive here. He was definitely looking to do something, but he's not in a rush. And there may be something helpful to us as God's people as we consider how we live to think about the fact that God oftentimes is active around us. He just doesn't seem to be in a hurry. And that can be really troubling. That can be really 
frustrating. Don't you see the problem? I mean, I think of Mrs. Parsons here who flew down here. Her children all had it all set up. They were going to do this operation. Everything was going to take place. They had everything laid out. They'd done everything they could possibly do to get it all set up. And God said, well, uh, let's wait. And let's wait some more. And since we've been waiting this long, let's wait a little longer. That is very perplexing to us. And we need to admit that. We need to sometimes say to ourselves, we need to be okay as God's people to create an environment around us where we're able to say, I cannot understand why I keep getting sick. I cannot understand why these things continue to happen. I don't understand why God just doesn't do something now. All of us have experienced this to some degree or another. If nothing else, it's why doesn't God just make me a better person now? Why do I keep having to go through the process of screwing things up? I'd like to quit screwing things up, Lord. Now. Show your power. I know I'm weak. Everyone else knows I'm weak. Delight to show your power and don't ever let me screw up again. Don't we all feel that way in some ways? I mean, doesn't sometimes it just perplex us to no end that we know God's at work around us, but He just doesn't seem to be in that big a hurry. Fix it now. Well, we're going to fix it one screw at a time. Just think about that. It's just, it's, God is active, but it just seems to take a long time. He's not in a rush. His intervention, though, is shown to be Timely and purposeful, and purposeful, I've said with full, F-U-L-L, to remind us that's what it's supposed to mean. Purposeful, full of purpose. God is teaching His people here. And remember, I've told you this before, but I want to remind you again, Genesis was not written for the people that it's written about. It was written for the children of Israel. I want you to think about this. Noah sits on top of a mountain waiting for God to dry out the land. Children of Israel sit at the bottom around a mountain while Moses sits at the top waiting on God to give his commands, to give them their directives. Waiting. 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 And so we see that God is teaching us that we're to trust him even when it doesn't look like he's doing anything because he is doing something. I mean, there's no way to know whether Noah knew that God's wind was blowing out there across the earth and was drying everything up. I mean, we know he doesn't know why, because he opens up the hatch and starts sending out birds. But we do know this. He sends out the birds because he believes what? That God will dry up the earth. He believes what? That God is at work out there, even if he can't see it, even if he doesn't know what's going on. He knows that God has not forgotten him. He is trusting the Lord in that sense. And that's the same sense that we have to trust the Lord. You may not see all the ways that God is at work around you. You have no idea what he's doing. Your call is to continue to go about doing the things you're called to do, being faithful in what you do know, faithful in what you do see, faithful in where you are called at that moment, trusting that whatever the grander scheme is, God is at work, accomplishing all His holy will. Now, another thing I want you to see that God is showing these people is that when it comes to Noah, 
we see God's work of creation and providence merged. I want you to notice here that God's work of creation is seen again here because for those of you that are familiar with the creation account, look what happens. The waters are separated, right? The waters begin to go back to their places. The water that came from above has gone back to its place. The water that came from below has gone back to its place. The waters separate. We've seen that before. At creation, when the Spirit was over the waters... God commands that the waters would separate. The waters above and the waters beneath would be separated. And so we see the waters going back. Then dry land appears. That draws us right back to the creation. Then we have the idea that the land sprouts forth vegetation, right? The dove goes out. The raven goes out, flies around. It finally finds somewhere to land because there's somewhere on one of those mountain peaks that raven ultimately lands and perches and finds carrion and begins to eat. But a dove is a valley dweller. It, it can't just live up in, in the thermals of the mountains. It has to get down into the valleys. And so the verse goes out, it doesn't see it. But ultimately, it brings back an olive branch. Vegetation has reappeared. Again, order of creation. And then the Lord continues to dry out the ground until the text says it's dry, dry. We've seen that double verb before, right? Die, die, eat, eat. Here we find a double verb. The ground is dry, dry. That's why it keeps repeating itself. You go, well, it said the ground was dry. And then a couple of verses later it says, and the ground was dried. And you're thinking, well, I thought you just told me the ground was dry. But if you were actually reading in Hebrew, you'd find that the first one says, and the ground was dry. The second one says, it was dry, dry. It was really, in fact, no longer would you be stepping in squishy stuff. Terra firma was firm once again. And that's the reality here that we see that God's perseverance with his people and his people's perseverance with him, Noah doesn't leave the ark. Noah stays. We see God being teaching and thoughtful. Finally, we see that animals go forth and humanity once again returns and stands upon a new creation. The scripture, what, what theologians will tell you is this is the idea of progressive parallelism. And the only reason why I even bother to tell you this is because it really does help you read the Bible better. In fact, Luke uses this within his own. It's not just within the whole frame of scripture, but you even see this within books itself. You see it here in Genesis, but Luke does the same thing. Luke will tell you about Elizabeth's birth only to set you up to tell you about the greater birth, Jesus's. And you see all the way through Luke, he'll tell you one story, and then a couple of chapters later, you'll see the, the bigger picture. So all through Scripture, we see this idea of progressive parallelism. There's this reality, but then there's this greater reality that it's pointing to. And so I want you to see that right here in Genesis chapter 8, what we see is there was creation, but now we see the realities of a new creation. God created and saved a man He's now creating, now saving a man and his family in the recreation. We're ultimately, we know we're pointing to the fact that we're, it won't just be in the Exodus when God remembers them. We know he's not just saving a family. What's he saving? A nation. And then from a nation, the hope that God would save the nations. Not just a nation, but the nations. And so you see Scripture moving this progressive parallelism. These stories seem very similar, but they're moving in intensity and showing forth the reality that God is at work, even though it seems like things just keep going on the way they always have. Now, one thing I want you to notice in this text, if you didn't see it originally, you can go back and look at it now. Where is the sun? 
Creation's moving along like it's supposed to. No sun. No lights. What, what dried out the earth? You see how important this is about God being at work? What's the text specifically trying to tell you? God may have used, the, the wind blowing across the earth may in fact have been using the natural order of the sun and evaporation and all sorts of things going on. But the text is specifically trying to drive us to a conclusion which says, this is not about the natural order. God may use the natural order, but that's not the point here. The point here is this is God. In every one of the Sumerian accounts of the flood, they always talk about the fact that it was the sun God who dried out the earth. And isn't that interesting that in Genesis chapter 8, the thing that's missing is the sun. Where are the children of Israel heading to out of Egypt? Where they worshipped Ra, the sun god, and heading to the areas where the Sumerian text and the Babylonian text would have been readily available? What's God saying? I am God and there is no other. I am the one who saves. I am the one who is at work. And you see how subtly we can start to put things into our own thoughts and minds which say, well, it's God who saves through my job. It's God who, who provides for us. You see what I'm saying? And, and what this text is driving us to is saying, all that may be true and you're right to give honor and glory to God as long as you really are overwhelmed with the fact that it's God who does it. It's God. It's all of God. You wouldn't have a job without Him. There would be no sun without Him. There would be no wind without Him. There would be no water without Him. It's all God. That's why the text is driving the point home and driving it home to God's people as they travel into a new land where the flood text would tell them that they were supposed to give homage to the sun god. The last thing I want us to look at then is God's provision. We've already seen that God provided His Spirit. We also see that God provides His Word. And I want you to notice how long that Noah sits in this ark. The last time God had heard, the last time Noah had heard God speak had been a year earlier. God waits a complete solar year, 365 days before He speaks. And if you were to go and do all the calendar, you'd realize that by the time you get to all these dates adding up, you'd come up with a solar year. God waited a complete solar year before he spoke to Noah again and said, okay, you can leave. Sometimes God waits a whole lot longer. And I want you to think about what's being taught here and what we see in God's provision. God provides his word when? In his time. What's the old hymn that says, in his time he makes all things beautiful in his time. We tend to get really excited about God making all things beautiful. The problem is the subtlety of our heart says, in our time, how about right now? In his time. He provides in his time, on his timetable, when he knows things are right. Now the point is, is that Noah threw open the door of the ark. The dove had come back. He had 
the leaves. He knew trees were growing. Noah could have said, hey, common sense says if there's trees growing, if the dove doesn't come back, it's time to pop open the door and head out. But who closed the door? God did. When the ark's door was shut, the text tells us very clearly that all the animals and, and Noah and his family went in and God shut the door. And on whose word should that door be open? On His. And Noah waits. Noah waits on the Lord to provide. Now, what I want you to see then is, is that Noah shows us this reality by what he does as soon as he gets off the ark. What does he do? He worships. The first thing we're told here is that Noah gets off the ark and it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now here's the reality you need to see here in this, in this is the fact that Noah directs worship to God. Who provides the means of worship? God. It was God's wisdom that told Noah, be sure of all the clean animals to bring seven. Six pairs, one extra. Why six pairs and not just two like all the others? Because they're going to need to have the ability to sacrifice. Therefore, they need more reproduction to be going on with those animals. See God working in the normal order to provide, but who is it that is ultimately behind it? God. God provides. God is at work. The aroma that we read about here, it says this. It says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. The tendency is to think, okay, Noah offered up a, a pleasing aroma to God. God was satisfied, therefore God acted. And that would be easy to fall into that trap, but you'd be a good Canaanite and not a good biblical person. God was not motivated by that sacrifice. Rather, what we see in this text is this, that Noah responds to what God has already done. The aroma is more the reality of God loving the fact that Noah has seen him for who he is as a God who's at work, as a God who's providing, as a God who remembers. They see him in that capacity. And what, do they do? what does he do? That provokes him to worship. So God is delighted that Noah is a man who sees God for who he is. Not God doing things because of the fact that Noah did them. God had already done them. God had already recreated the world. He had already purged the world he had already provided for Noah. It had already been done. What God responds to is Noah's gratefulness. And so God sees what Noah has done, and God makes this declaration. And this is how we need to see God providing. God says that because of 
the reality of what man is, he's not going to continue to curse the ground anymore. Now, that doesn't mean he's going back to Genesis 3.17 and saying, okay, I cancel that out. That's not what God is saying here. What God is saying is, I'm not going to continue to curse the ground because of man. In other words, I'm not going to add future problems. And it's seen in the fact that he offers seasons, right? Morning and evening, summer, heat, winter, cold, the season's regularity. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm not going to continue to destroy and destroy and destroy. Man is wicked. He's going to continue to be wicked, and I'm going to be long-suffering and allow there to be a normalcy and a stability of life. I'm going to continue to provide. And we've already seen this idea of God because he was merciful to Cain, even though Cain's line was not the line of the woman. We've already seen how he operates with people. And right here he says, look, men are sinful, and if I continue to judge them because of their sin, the earth would be perpetually destroyed. I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm going to let time go on for a long time. And so we see here that God provides His merciful provision for humanity because of their sin. They can't stop themselves. He grants normal trustworthiness, seasons, and cosmic stability. And that's exactly what, as we move now to conclude, that's exactly what Peter picks up on because what what does humanity do with that stability? Humanity says, where is your God? Life just goes on like it always has for thousands of years. Sunrise, sunset. You know, you're in the Tucson Valley. It's the opposite of Chicago. In Chicago, you have two seasons up there. You have winter and construction. I basically figured out that this is why Midwesterners, why Midwesterners love to move to Tucson, because you have two seasons here too. It's called construction and summer. Some of the exact opposite. Everything stops in the summer, just like it is up there in the wintertime. But, but the idea I want you to see here is the fact that it's because of God's mercy that what does humanity do with it? They take that as a sign of his weakness, as a sign of his frailty, as a sign that he is not doing anything. And the question is, as God's people, are we doing the same thing? Does God really remember me? Really? Is God really at work around me? When we're having to pull the belt a little bit tighter, is God really a God who provides? Really? Do you see how this text is confronting us right where we live, right where we move in everyday life? Do you see how it's drawing us and saying to you, where are you living? What are you thinking? Because see, that has a direct proportion to how you will live, to how you will operate with God's people. Ultimately, what we see in this sign with Noah is this, that one man's sacrifice Through one man's sacrifice, God might show mercy to the nations. Because isn't that what happens? Noah sacrifices, and God says, that's pleasing. That's pleasing. One man, one sacrifice, mercy to the nations. See, that's what we see in Christ, don't we? One man, one sacrifice, God satisfied man blessed how might we respond to that here's a few suggestions 
This time of year ought to be one of the easiest times of years for Christians to reach out to other people with the message of the gospel. And for no other reason than it's always in the news. So it's on people's minds. Here's some ways that we can think about it. Those who are without Christ are not to be viewed as hopeless because the Spirit is blowing. Isn't that what Jesus said in John chapter 3? The Spirit is blowing. See, just like in the days of Noah, the Spirit is blowing. We don't know where all the places He's blowing, but we know this, that when He blows into someone's life, their life can never be the same. And we ought to live with the expectation that God is saving people all the time, and we ought to desire to be a part of His saving work. Secondly, God has remembered us. That's what the incarnation is all about, isn't it? That God remembered us, that God moved towards us in power and mercy to send forth His Son, born of a woman in the fullness of time. He remembered that God is remembering. I mean, isn't that the point that is made? If God would give you His own Son, what else would He withhold from you? Will He not give you all things? We ought to be people who say, yes, He remembers us now. He provides. He knows. He sees. And it ought to give us hope that He will remember us. If He has done all that He promised, will He not be true to come back and get us? He promised He would. If I go, I will go and prepare places for you. And when I go, I will prepare a place for you. And when I go and prepare that place for you, I will come again. He remembers us. He's at work around us and in us. And He is providing for us. Let us live like we know that to be the truth. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.